the Brexit vote was an ad hoc referendum called by the executive uh, on a general question, the legal force of which was unclear. Dicey, by contrast, accepted only a version of what is now often called a mandatory constitutional referendum. That is, it's a referendum that's triggered automatically when certain types of decision occur, those which Dicey calls constitutional or fundamental decisions. Max Gunsberg at the University of Cambridge. I'm here with uh, Greg Conti from Princeton. I'm going to ask him some questions about his new book, which is a scholarly edition of Albert Van Dyse's writings on democracy and the referendum, just published in Cambridge Text in the History of Political Thought series, the so-called Blue Book series. So Greg, my first question to you is an obvious one. Why an edition of the political writings by A.B. Dicey? He may not be best known as a political thinker today. Yeah, uh, thanks, Max. So um, you're certainly right. Uh, Dicey um, is not best known as a political thinker, but instead as a legal thinker. Dicey, who um, lived in uh, from 1835 to 1922, um, remains a staple of the legal academy. He's sort of the best known writer on constitutional law from uh, the long 19th century. And uh, as I say, remains a staple uh, for um, the legal academy above all in the United Kingdom, but also I would say throughout the Anglophone common law world. He also though had quite significant things to say about politics as was recognized in his own time. To use uh, a useful phrase from the scholar Stefan Collini, Dicey was what we might call a public moralist. Although he was present at the time that universities became more, more professionalized, more specialized, and although he was by profession a law professor, the boundaries between disciplines and between the worlds of higher ed, journalism, and politics were much more porous than, uh, than they are now. So he certainly didn't feel himself constrained to write only about law in a narrow technical sense as we might sort of think about it today. Uh, and there's also just abundant evidence that Dicey saw himself as a political thinker and even a political philosopher a la Tocqueville or Burke or Mill. That is as someone who asked, you know, the big questions about where society was headed and what the fundamental norm should be that would structure modern life and who saw it as sort of his job to apprise the literate public of his views on these matters. And he viewed himself, I think, uh, as as much this sort of figure as, as a legal specialist. He even wrote that his true, the true love of his life was politics and not law. Uh, and this comes out uh, interestingly on his tombstone where one designation that appears there to commemorate his life is that he was a quote, political philosopher. Uh, moreover, there's just the fact, I think, um, when you ask about why, why now, there's the fact that, which I hope this edition brings out, that a lot of the political issues with which Dicey was wrestling 
remain uh, timely and relevant. Questions about you know how to structure democracy, um, what is the relationship between legislatures and uh, direct popular input, and uh, and so forth. So while many of his particular prescriptions uh, might not find backers, you know today a lot of the dilemmas he he wrestled with uh, do find echoes now. Excellent, thank you. And before we talk more about the edition and its uh, relevance today, um, would you mind saying a little bit about the process of putting together the edition? So you, you published your, your monograph, your first book a few years ago, and I think, I think I'm right in saying that this is the first scholarly edition you, you've done. Uh, so could you please tell us a little bit about the process of, of, of making the edition? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so you're right. This is the first time uh, I've done an edition like this. And um, the idea for it uh, was first suggested to me actually by uh, my colleague at Princeton, Melissa Lane, after I mentioned to her that I was considering writing a monograph on Dicey's political theory. Um, so that book on, on Dicey has since expanded. I've been working on a book that's kind of become a sort of comprehensive account of his politics, although themes uh, of liberalism and democracy are still at the center of it. But uh, at the time I was envisioning a sort of slim study of him that was focused in particular on his advocacy of the referendum. Um, it's an interesting paradox, uh, which some people have noticed, but, but um, not as many as you might expect, that qua analyst of the law of his country, Dicey provided the classical statement of the meaning of parliamentary sovereignty. But in his personal politics, he was an unstinting champion of the referendum, which would have abridged or qualified that very parliamentary sovereignty. So that, you know, that fact is still very much a part of my research uh, on Dicey, as I was saying, but at the time it was really the, the heart of it. And so it struck me as, you know, worth gathering some representative writings of his uh, on this question of the referendum and maybe trying to do so in a way that would um, also encapsulate this sort of Tocquevillian mode that he has of um, not just writing about the referendum as an institution, but embedding that discussion of the referendum within uh, a kind of account of the trajectory that he thinks democracy is likely to undergo. Uh, so, you know, with Brexit not too far in uh, the rearview mirror and a growing interest, I think, among political theorists, um, I think here of the work of someone like uh, Jeffrey Lenowitz at Brandeis, who's just written a big book about, um, about referendums. Um, anyway, with this kind of growing interest among political theorists who previously had been curiously rather incurious, I think, about referendums, um, it just seemed to me like a time when uh, maybe there would be interest in a collection of this sort. And, um, you know, I was pleased to see that, that, that there was once I proposed it. So that's really all the, all the thought that went into it. Excellent. And um, of course, Dicey wrote a great deal. Could you say just a little bit more about how you selected, uh, how you made the selections for the edition. You've already touched on it, but is there anything more you would like to add about how you found and decided on which specific texts um, 
to include and, and also what to exclude? Yeah, um, you know, it is, it is a good question. He, he did write a great deal, as you say. Um, as, I, as I noted, I was really aiming for a kind of representative sample of his writing about the referendum specifically, but I also wanted to complement um, you know, the writing on that particular institutional question with uh, some pieces that would help us to understand why he advocated it with such energy. Um, which I think means grasping something of his general understanding of themes like national unity, the nature of democracy, um, the reason why he opposed proposals for Irish home rule, which is the immediate inciting incident for uh, him beginning to advocate the referendum. So he starts to advocate the referendum uh, because um, uh, Prime Minister uh, William Gladstone takes the Liberal Party from, uh, takes the Liberal Party to back uh, Irish Home Rule and Dicey, like many uh, who had been, many intellectuals who have been liberals up to that time, leaves the Liberal Party at that, at that point and becomes a unionist and sees the referendum as a way of, of defeating uh, Home Rule, which he sees as kind of only having a liberal parliamentary backing, but not a genuine national uh, popular following. Um, you know, another theme I think that's very important for understanding Dicey's interest in the referendum is his views about uh, the character of parliamentary government and why it appeared to him to be in a sort of terminal decline. So, you know, I wanted to uh, include some pieces about the referendum specifically, but also to include uh, some material on these general themes that form, I think, an important backdrop for why he, he favored the referendum. So, um, you know, as I say, I wanted uh, pieces on the referendum, but also something that can place it within that broader context of concern. And the trouble is that, uh, as you know, Dicey, like a lot of these Victorians, wrote um, insanely voluminously, but he did not combine his thoughts on politics into a single volume. He didn't produce an equivalent for political theory of, you know, the Leviathan or the social contract. Um, and alas, a fair amount of his writing is really marked by immediate circumstances and kind of polemical needs. And the trouble with that is that I think it would just take a great amount of contextualizing and a really heavy editorial hand sort of to make it legible to people who aren't you know, in the weeds professionally uh, like we are um, with this stuff. So I just sort of cast about for an assortment of essays from across a fairly decent span of time in which these theoretical issues are fairly in the foreground and um, you know wouldn't be too far to to seek um, and would be fairly um, easy and pleasurable to read for someone who is just a generally politically curious person today you know for which you wouldn't need a ton of uh, sort of specialist knowledge and so that's sort of the hope behind behind the selections. Fantastic. You've already talked a little bit about why he thought that the referendum uh, was important, but could you please say a little bit about how he envisioned um, the referendum to work? Because it is it's quite interesting. His I I I think his his um his vision of the referendum and and it's very different, at least the way I understand it, from say the Brexit referendum, which you have already referred to. So could you please say something about 
the workings of the ISIS referendum. Yeah, uh, great. Now, Dicey is an interesting figure for the for, for the Brexit debate, and his name was um, invoked uh, a few times in the course of it. Um, on the one hand, he did believe that constitutional questions in a democracy required uh, popular input to have legitimacy. And this seems to me um, to be against a certain you know, Remainer instinct that uh, thought the whole thing should just be left up to Parliament or that the, uh, the vote could just kind of be ignored after, after it had happened. On the other hand, though, um, Dicey would only accept a very specific mechanism for bringing this popular input into play. Um, and this was hardly a, a vision of radical democracy that he offered. Uh, he didn't countenance any form of the initiative, for instance, and he would not, uh, I think, have approved of the way in which the Brexit vote specifically was conducted. The Brexit vote was an ad hoc referendum called by the executive uh, on a general question, the legal force of which was unclear. Dicey, by contrast, accepted only a version of what is now often called a mandatory constitutional referendum. That is, it's a referendum that's triggered automatically when certain types of decision occur. Those which Dicey calls uh, a bit hazily, he sort of waffles on the terminology, constitutional or fundamental decisions. And this is uh, all in contrast to um, a referendum that is left up to the discretion of some government actor on whether it's to be held or not and how it's to be held. So according to Dicey's reform, bills which uh, touch on constitutional terrain after having been passed um, by the two houses of parliament would be submitted automatically and according to a procedure that's um, been decided on well in advance, uh, be submitted to the electorate for confirmation or refusal. And Dicey insists, right, this is a strictly legal process um, and, um, and, you know, there's, there's nothing at all ad hoc or left to the uh, discretion of the sitting government. Um, and that's fundamental to the way he views a legitimate referendum. Now, some of the, you know, there's a lot of uh, sort of tricky stuff in Dicey about this. As I said, Dicey is not entirely consistent in demarcating this category of constitutional or fundamental legislation on which the, the referendum would occur. So he always included certain core aspects of public law so, for example, uh, bills that would change the electoral system, that would, say, abolish the monarchy or change the fundamental administrative structure of the state, things that would involve, say, devolution. Um, these would always trigger a referendum for Dicey, but he was unclear about what other types of uh, legislation might fall in with this idea of altering the fundamental institutions of the state, as he called it. So sometimes he suggested that major reforms to things like education or poor relief might also trigger a referendum. But he was sort of, you know, you might say opportunistically content to leave all of that a bit unclear. Uh, in any case, according to Dicey's plan, legislation that altered these foundations of the state would become valid only after receiving the majority approval of the nation on the bill that had passed um, the uh, Houses of Parliament and already received the royal assent. 
and were a bill to garner only minority support at that stage, it would be considered failed just as if it had lost the vote uh, within the commons or lords or been vetoed uh, by the monarch. So what's crucial here really is that while Dicey often spoke in this language of popular sovereignty, what he's actually doing is approving of no popular changes which would supplant the legislature. His referendum would only supplement parliament. The point of it is to add another veto point within a well-defined legislative process in which the whole um, electorate would participate uh, for bills which sort of go right to the basic structure of the state. So in a sense, the people are added into the process as almost uh, a third house of, of the legislature. And that is all quite unlike how Brexit played out, as sort of anyone can see. Now, one last word I'll say on this. It's remarkable how ahead of his time Dicey was here, even though, of course, what he's suggesting doesn't, uh, doesn't fit with the way Brexit was conducted. Uh, in advocating a mandatory constitutional referendum, Dicey was kind of speaking of a procedure that was then very novel. But um, now a majority of democracies include a mandatory constitutional referendum in some form or another, uh, if not exactly in Dicey's. So in that sense, we can say that Dicey was, was really rather, rather prescient and someone who saw the direction uh, in which democracy would go kind of right on the cusp of the modern democratic age. Thank you, Greg, for setting out so clearly and comprehensively um, Dice's view on, on the referendum. Moving on slightly from that, um, I learned a lot from, from the introduction to the edition. Um, and you write about Dicey and um, that Dicey was good at coming up with uh, classifications some of which are, are remain useful. Um, so for example, one of his famous definitions is um, of federalism. So federalism as being um, based on a desire for union, but not unity. Could you perhaps say something about, about that, Dyson on federalism, or, or any other of his classifications you would like to talk about? Uh, yeah, sure. Now, I think this is one of the kind of engaging things about reading Dicey. He did have this Weberian or or Aronian aptitude for generating typologies. Uh, and what's fruitful, I think, about such typologies is that even when they don't sort of immediately seem to fit to us, asking why they don't resonate with us can kind of compel us to clarify our own views about how we see some major political questions. So in any case, yes, Dicey was really a, a fount of such classifications. If you look at his lectures on comparative constitutionalism, which uh, were recently edited extremely well by John Allison of Cambridge, uh, you see many of these classifications there. So for, to give just a few, he has divisions, uh, for example, between historical and non-historical constitutions, rigid and flexible constitutions, between states which are civil, military, or legal in spirit, uh, another interesting uh, distinction is that between what he calls parliamentary government and government by parliament. So the former, um, which Dicey considers a, a healthy form of government, occurs when parliament legislates and appoints and monitors the executive, uh, whereas the latter occurs when the legislature becomes overweening, swallows up the executive kind of entirely, um, 
and attempts to directly run the administration and govern the country. Um, and he's thinking here of some, some episodes in, in uh, French history and in the French Revolution in particular, uh, when, he, when he thinks of government by parliament. Uh, but to refer to your particular topic, federalism, yeah, at the time, Dicey was one of England's most acute analysts of federalism, which after all was not a concept native to, to the Victorians. Um, Dicey did, as you say, define federalism as resting on a desire for union but not unity, which was to say that federalism, he thought, appealed when there were uh, parties who wanted to merge into a common state and to share a common citizenship, but who also wanted to provide protection for diverse cultures and ways of life that pre-existed this, this new political community. So for this reason, Dicey saw federalism as what he, he called a stage toward more unity. It was for him a step on the way toward building a cohesive nation, even if formally, as in the US, the state structure never became totally unitarian. So this is part of why he reacted in horror at Gladstone's uh, proposals for Irish home rule, because they seemed to Dicey against the direction of history, which was bending towards larger and more unified states, against the laws of federalism, so to speak, which were meant to bring together units that had no prior formal tie. Um, and whereas, um, in his view, home rule was a kind of, um, you know, was a, a form of, of federalism being imported into the British constitution. And, but it was being done not in order to bind people together, but in order to loosen ties that had already brought, um, brought together groups within a unitary state. And for Dicey, there was something kind of unnatural, disintegrative, troubling uh, about this. Federalism was not meant to sort of unwind, but only to, to, to bring together. And that was just sort of stipulated almost in his definition uh, of the term. Dicey also disliked federalism on other grounds. And part of his definition of federalism was that it was necessarily a legalistic, weak and conservative form of government. And, uh, you know, that's um, a very dour assessment, but I think it's quite interesting to contemplate, uh, at least to me as the citizen of a federal republic. You know, it's worth thinking, is that actually true? Am I doomed to live uh, in a legalistic, weak uh, and conservative um, state? So I'll leave it there on that. Thank you, Greg. Lots of, to, to think about there. Um, so so um, we talked quite a lot about Dicey being ahead of his time, prescient, a pioneer, but you also say in the introduction that he's one of history's losers. What do you mean by that? Is this a reference to, to the Irish question in particular or, or something else? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, it does refer to the Irish uh, issue for sure. That's a big one. Um, Dicey was an ardent proponent of maintaining the union with Ireland. Uh, and of course he lost on that question. Ireland becomes, um, an independent state just um, very shortly, months before Dicey dies. Um, more generally though, there are a number of other ways I think in which we can see him as having kind of lost out in, in um, the movement of history. As I was just saying, he was a real critic of, federal, of federalism and devolution. 
But um, the UK has become uh, a state with a great deal of devolution. And uh, across the West, um, asymmetrical federalism in the name of multiculturalism or ideas of subsidiarity um, uh, have fared quite well. We've seen uh, these things be brought in in a number of, uh, of states. And Dicey, who is very much a champion of uh, centralism and centralization, he would never have, have tolerated uh, these particular kind of experimenta uh, experiments in state structure. Dicey also supported uh, the empire, which of course uh, is gone. He was also, while not a Nozick style libertarian or anything, he was committed to a small state and to limited government interference in the market. Uh, he was opposed to um, the great people's budget and the other major proto-welfare state legislation that the liberal party fought for in the early part of the 20th century. And he lost on that front too. Uh, he was an opponent of what we would now call the administrative state. Uh, he saw it as irreconcilable with the rule of law, a phrase he helped to make popular. Uh, despite some feeble efforts by the Supreme Court in my country, this is also a battle in which um, sort of his vision got routed across most, uh, most modern states uh, and so on. I think, you know, insofar as Dicey was a kind of classical liberal, um, he, he lost out on a lot of these big battles as the modern welfare state uh, was formed. Dicey was even apoplectic uh, at the introduction of free school meals. He claimed that this would mean the end of the English tradition of self-help and personal responsibility, right? So, you know, this gives you a, a sense of the kind of world, uh, the worldview that, that he held on to in many respects. And it's certainly one, I think, that we can say uh, didn't triumph over the course of the 20th century. But as you were, you also mentioned in your, your, your question, I think what's fascinating is that on the other hand, he was extremely farsighted about some things. So uh, for example, about the spread of referendums. And I think on that front, he was also very clear headed about the fact that there would never be, you know, what's exactly the way to put it, there would never be this sort of big clash between direct and representative democracy like political theorists sort of often like to imagine it, this would, this would never occur. There would never be some big clash between these two, but rather modern democracies would just face a series of normative and prudential judgments about how best to combine the two. And I think that is in fact what's occurred in um, most uh, modern liberal democracies. And I think his articulation of some other values, um, religious liberty, freedom of speech, the rule of law, um, these ideals certainly remain uh, relevant today. So maybe just to reiterate, what I think is kind of fascinating about him is precisely this sort of mixture of past and present, of the fact that in a lot of regards, he seems to have been left behind by history. And while on the other hand, if you look at him from a slightly different angle, uh, he seems to have been, um, been vindicated in, in um, some of what he predicted. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Before we finish, I must ask you about a topic which interests me, um, especially. So, so you have written in, in your, your book, Parliament, The Mirror of the Nation, about the persistence of anti-party thought in the Victorian period. I suppose that diocese is part of that to an extent. I mean, he seems to have been someone who was... Um, certainly interested in, in parliamentary parties, but at the same time, 
deeply worried about um, extreme factionism and people putting party before country. So could you perhaps say something about Darcy um, and his thought on political parties? Yeah, um, yeah, certainly. I think this is, you know, Dice's outlook on parties is a bit hard to sum up, I think, in a succinct, theoretically satisfying formulation. Um, I think he had more of a feeling or impression of the kind of parties he liked than really a, you know, a fully fledged theory. Dicey, he did believe in the two party system, but he didn't really like these parties being too centralized, being dictated to by, by the whip or the caucus or by a really demagogically successful premier like, uh, like Gladstone. Um, Dicey wanted parties to have a little slack in the system, so to speak. Um, he, he wanted there to be a principled division between the parties because absent this principled opposition, he thought parties would degenerate simply into corrupt collections of interests that would be um, hijacked by extremists or at least prone to be hijacked by them. But on the other hand, he he did think that ultimately the two parties needed to operate within a fairly tight social consensus, such that they weren't very far apart on fundamentals, because he wanted the moderate members of both parties to be able occasionally to defect and support the other side without being consigned to sort of political death, you know, without being written out of, of their party altogether. And I think he, as, as I see it, he really took that ideal of these somewhat cohesive but still looser uh, parties um, from how he believed the middle class uh, reformed parliament had functioned between the first and second reform acts in the middle of the century, which is the time in which he's, he's coming of age. And I think what he did really was he held on to the hope that somehow parties could function like this, even once you had moved to a genuinely mass suffrage. And um, there, I think we can say he, he was not probably particularly prescient. I think that that was a rather idle hope, as uh, Weber would point out within Dicey's own lifetime. You know, Weber would say you can't have, uh, in Weber's terms, you know, what Dicey seems to have wanted is a party that functioned like a party of, no of notables, a party that's a holdover from an era of restricted suffrage um, in a time of mass suffrage, when you have to have organized machine-like parties in order to mobilize a mass vote. Um, that said, many citizens in democracies today decry the state of their own political parties, finding them to be obstacles to enacting the popular will, thinking that uh, you know, their representatives are extremely deficient in different ways, unsatisfying, corrupt, and so on. And they denounce them in terms very similar to those that Dicey used. So there's even there, there's something kind of interesting about Dicey. His dissatisfactions seem a lot like our own dissatisfactions. On the other hand, his particular analysis um, of what the alternative is, is sort of left pretty, pretty hazy and, and wanting maybe. Um, and he didn't go as far as some other people in his time, like, um, say, Moise Ostrogorsky, who was a contemporary of his, who wrote a famous study of political parties um, and just proposed abolishing them. So there's nothing like that in, in Dicey. Okay, that's, that's excellent, Greg. So thank you for, for that answer. And thank you, I mean, thank you for 
completing this edition and bringing it out for us. I mean, it, it's it's going to be so useful for um, for myself and and others um, listening to to this interview. I, I I mean, both in terms of teaching dicey, as well as um, is as well as researching and 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 finding out more about uh, this fascinating thinker. Looking forward, having done this edition, would you be interested in producing more editions of Victorian political thinkers and, and, and texts? Do you have any current plans for for uh, yeah bringing out more of these editions? Yeah, um, as far as new editions go, I do uh, have one that I'm working on, though I'm dreadfully far behind where I should be. So. Um, for Hackett, uh, I have promised an edition of Mill's writings on parliamentarism and representative government, um, uh, which hopefully, you know, the the promise of it is to kind of canvas his views on this theme from across his whole career. Again, taking a kind of representative sample of his views from from the different periods in which he was writing. And um, as as with this book, I'll try to supply an introduction with hopefully a sort of a original analysis where I'll, I'll lay out some uh, some of my own uh, ideas about how to understand Mill on on the topic. So, yeah, that's the only other um, edition I'm working on at the moment. But um, hopefully it's something I can I can complete uh, complete before too long. And I suppose, you know, that's kind of moving backward in time, but is in a way the it's sort of the prequel, you could say, to a lot of the themes that are are in the, the dicey volume. So excellent. And something for, for all of us to look to look forward to. I think that's that's everything I want to talk about. Is there anything you would like to add, Greg, before we before we conclude? No, um just uh, you know I'd just like to thank you for doing this. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'll just plug the fact that uh, we're going to have another conversation uh, before too long where I'll interview you on the uh, edition you did uh, recently of Catherine McCauley. So people who enjoyed this discussion can can look out for for that. So Absolutely. Uh, thank you, and I mean, and, and I cannot recommend this edition highly enough to historians of political thought, of course, historians of the Victor Victorian era, uh, British historians, historians of Parliament, the referendum, and uh, constitutionalism more, more broadly, a highly useful edition, both for, for students, teachers, and, and scholars. So thank you, Greg. Thank you for your time, and speak to you soon. Yes, thanks a lot.